Shalom and welcome to the Jewish Mind, where the growth of modernity meets the timeless wisdom and solutions of Judaism. Let us start with a simple question. Is the belief of the existence of an Ayin Hara a primitive superstition of the Dark Ages, or is it a modern-day issue? Well, we will have to first define what an Ayin Hara, an evil eye, is. The first time we see the works of an evil eye in the Torah is actually in Sarah giving Hagar an evil eye in Genesis. The verse states, And he, meaning Abraham, came to Hagar, and she conceived, and she saw that she was pregnant, and her mistress became unimportant in her eyes. Rashi explains the reason why Hagar now saw her mistress Sarah as unimportant. She, Hagar, said, This Sarah, her conduct in secret, is not like her conduct in public. She shows herself as if she is a righteous woman, but she is not a righteous woman, for she did not marry conceiving all these years, whereas I have conceived from the first union. The verse then goes on to speak of Sarah speaking harshly to Abraham, of Abraham's silence towards Hagar's disrespect to Sarah. And Sarah said to Abraham, May my injustice be upon you. I gave my handmaid into your bosom, and she saw that she had become pregnant, and I became unimportant in her eyes. May the Lord judge between me and you. That's the verses, up in which Rashi explains a grammatical inference in the verse. So he quotes the words, I gave my handmaid, etc., between me and you. Now the Hebrew word between you, every banayich, benayich, in scripture is spelled defectively, without the second yud. But this one is spelled in full. It may thus also be read as uvenayich, second person feminine. Why? For she cast an evil eye on Hagar's pregnancy and Hagar miscarried her fetus. This is why the angel later said to Hagar, Behold, you will conceive. But was she not already pregnant? Yet he announces to her that she will conceive. But this teaches that she miscarried her first pregnancy. Okay, what's going on? Rashi is referring to the Hebrew words for between me and between you. There are certain Hebrew letters that can be left out of the spelling and are sounded through the vowels. Thus the letter Yud in the word Benayach is usually left out. And it's being used here is, being te- is teaching us something. Rashi tells us that, later in the story, when the angel promises Hagar that she will conceive and have a child, the question needs to be asked that Hagar was already pregnant. Thus we are taught that Hagar had a miscarriage from her original pregnancy. What is important to us in this lecture is that Hagar miscarried because of an ayin hara upon her, which was given by Sarah. We have some insight here as to what lay behind an evil eye. Hagar judged her becoming pregnant right away and of Sarah's not becoming pregnant after all these years as a sign that Sarah was not righteous and that she was deceptive about her perceived righteousness. Hagar not only believed this, but as well acted upon this belief towards Sarah, the very woman who gave her the opportunity to have a child. Sarah's response was contempt for Hagar's pregnancy with resentment towards Hagar's blessing. Hagar's comparison between herself and Sarah and Sarah's responsive resentment opened Hagar up to receive an evil eye from Sarah. Thus we see that there are two participants in an evil eye. 
in which the recipient opens themselves up to the evil eye and that the giver gives the evil eye. Were Hagar not to have opened herself up to the evil eye or were Sarah not to have given the evil eye, then Hagar would have, protected, would have been protected from an evil eye. Hagar using her blessing in judging Sarah opened her blessing from God to scrutiny and made her blessing open to an evil eye of scrutiny and judgment from Sarah. This evil eye, which is about our opening our blessings from God to scrutiny and other people's scrutiny and judgment upon our blessing, is, according to Jewish belief, not a superstition of the past, but an issue of modern reality. Some introductions. Many of you may be familiar with Kenny Rogers' song, The Gambler. Here is a line from the lyrics of The Gambler. You never count your money while you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. Counting is a specific way that one becomes open to the evil eye. We are taught in the book of Samuel 2 that King David commanded Joab, his general, to take a census of the armies, to which Joab implored of King David, and I will actually quote to you the verse. May the Lord your God add to the people a hundredfold of whatsoever they may be, and the eyes of my Lord the King may see it. But my Lord the King, why does he desire such a thing? Joab was beseeching of King David not to open the armies to the evil eye that hovers over the counted. However, King David did not listen, and the result was that 70,000 men died in a plague. That verse tells us that, and David's heart smote him after he had counted the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. And now, O Lord, put aside, please, the iniquity of your servant, for I was very foolish. Hmm. Our sages explain this with, Blessing is not found in that which is counted, but in that which is hidden from the eye. However, our sages explain that the reason why God commanded Moses to count the Jewish people is because, and I quote to you Rashi on the verse in Numbers where God commanded Moses to count the Jewish people, because they were dear to him, he counted them often. Thus, counting is a good thing. And yet on the other hand, counting opens up the counted to being a recipient of the evil eye. What a paradox. This week's Torah portion doesn't talk about Moses taking a census of the Jewish people. However, this Shabbat is the Shabbat before Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the Jewish calendar month of Adar, which is one month before Rosh Chodesh Nisan. The Jewish people in the times of the Holy Temple were commanded to give a half-shekel donation to the Holy Temple in the month of Nisan, and therefore our sages instituted that one month prior we should read the Torah portion of the half-shekel, reminding the Jewish people to prepare their half-shekel donation. The Torah portion of the half-shekel is the portion of God commanding Moses to take a census of the Jewish people. But in order to protect them from the evil eye, Moses was commanded not to count the actual people. Rather, each person was to give a half-shekel to the Holy Temple, and then Moses was to count the half-shekel coins. This is why we are exploring today the power of being counted and how to protect ourselves from the ayin hara, the evil eye. Another interesting introduction to our exploration of the evil eye is the blessing of Joseph. 
Joseph was blessed that he and his offspring be protected from the evil eye. Because when Jacob presented his family to his brother Esau, Joseph stood in front of his mother Rachel, so that the evil eye of Esau not be able to clearly see Joseph's beautiful mother Rachel. Thus God blessed Joseph that he and his offspring be protected from the evil eye. The Talmud speaks of a sage of whom his students asked, and I quote you the Talmud, says the rabbis to him, Is not the master afraid of the evil eye? He replied, I come from the seed of Joseph, over whom the evil eye has no power. How do we know this? Rabbi Judah, son of Rabbanina, derived it from this text, and let them multiply like fishes in the midst of the earth, just as the fishes in the sea are covered by water, and the evil eye has no power over them, so the evil eye has no power over the seed of Joseph. That's a quote from the Talmud. What is interesting is that in, the, in this aspect, Joseph is compared to the fish in the ocean, which are hidden from the human eye, and thus are protected from the evil eye. This concept of sea creatures being protected from the evil eye of land creatures will give us great insight into the paradox of God counting the Jewish people out of sheer endearment and preciousness, and that being counting, counted can open us up to the evil eye. For the prior is the counting of the sea creature, while the latter is the counting of the land creature. Many of you may be familiar with the laws of neutralization in Jewish law. One such famous law is that if milk falls into a pot of chicken soup, of which the ratio is now 60 times the amount of chicken soup to the amount of milk, then the milk is neutralized to the chicken soup and the chicken soup is permissible without any concern of the forbidden mixture of milk and meat. Now, in the laws of neutralization, there are some exceptions. If their minority is of importance of value, then it does not become neutralized regardless of the ratio of the mixture. One of the concepts that dictates importance is if the item is sold in number rather than in bulk. Concerning eggs, this becomes an exploration, since in the times of old, eggs were sold both in bulk, as by the dozen, and also in number, as in buy, buy three eggs. Thus, if, for example, if the insides of an eagle egg fell into a ratio of 1 to 60 of chicken eggs, is the mixture permissible to eat or not? The law here will depend on how the law of counting concerning the law of neutralization was worded. One sage had the terminology of, and I'm going to quote you these words, whatsoever one is wont to count. While another sage has the terminology of that which one is wont to count. So we have the terminology whatsoever and that which. In Hebrew it would be kol or et. In the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus, these two terminologies concerning the law of counting importance of whatsoever and that which speaks of two different levels of numbers and their transparency and self-nullification to that which is beyond number, the uncountable. It is the difference between the transparency of the sea creatures and of the land creatures to the source. So again, in Kabbalah, we're going to come back to this. The difference of the wording et or kol in this law, when it says et davashabeminyan or kol davashabeminyan, whatsoever one is wont to count, 
or that which one is one to count, mystically refers to two different layers of transparency and self-nullification, humility, that of the sea creatures and that of the land creatures. Let's continue. The title of this lecture is Counting the Uncountable, which leads us to a practical question. The verse in Hosea states, And the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which shall neither be measured nor counted. What a paradox. First, the verse says the number shall be, which means that there is a number and that the children of Israel can be counted. And then the verse goes on to say, which shall neither be measured or counted, because of the children of Israel being beyond any infinite number that is countable. That's a paradox. We find the same paradox concerning God, in which we are taught that Elijah the prophet says, this is in the opening of the Zohar, introduction to the Zohar, and many say it Friday night as an introduction to accepting Shabbat. You are one and not countable. We call God one, which is a number, and then we say that God is beyond countable numbers. Again, the paradox. Yet, once again, let us look at the verse of Hosea, and therein lay the secret behind the paradox. As the sand of the sea. We are speaking of sand, which is of the land. However, we are speaking of how the sand exists in the sea. And thus there exists a paradox counting of the uncountable. Let's go on. What on a mystical level does uncountable and countable mean? The Hebrew root word for number, counting, is spor. In Hebrew, there's the three-letter root. And it's Samach Pei Resh, which has four different evolutions of etymology. One is, as we said, number. A second one is book, from the word Sefer. A third is story, from the word Sipur. And the fourth is shine, from the word Sapir, which is the name of a brilliant gem because it shines so brilliantly. In Kabbalah and Hasidis, all of these different four etymology, terminologies that can be used from the root word of sapir, sefer, or spor, or sipur, all of these apply to the infinite light. Once, once it manifests itself into sefirot, by the way, sefirot, which is the Hebrew word for emanations, also from the root word spor. The ten emanations. The ten emanations is where the infinite, the uncountable, contracts and becomes countable in being precisely ten emanations. These terminations are the book, which tells the story of the infinite light, in shining the brilliance of the infinite light. So you have number 10. You have it being the book, which tells the story of the infinite light by shining the brilliance of the infinite light to creation. Thus, the essence of the infinite light is uncountable. While the expression of the infinite light, once it goes through the tzimtzum process of concealment and contraction, becomes countable. Taking this down a level, within the ten emanations themselves, there are the light and the vessels. In the upper spiritual world, the light remains in the unity and infinite oneness of being uncountable. And thus, according to one opinion, there is one light in ten different vessels. The ten emanations are not ten lights, but one infinite light as it shines through different ten different vessels. What we now have is that within the ten emanations themselves, we have the experience of uncountable and of countable, which now means that they both exist 
within our realm of reality. What we also now have is that the vessel's experience of the uncountable is all dependent on their transparency or opaqueness to the uncountable infinite light within them. The terms of transparency and opaqueness in anthropomorphic terms of a human's service to God is humility and ego, in which transparency means having humility and opaqueness means ego. Here too, we have the two levels, in which the lower level is that our bodies and minds are the vessels, while our souls are the light. And the higher level is that our souls, as they clothe themselves in our body, are the tenemanations, the vessels, and the essence of our souls are the light. Either way, the journey of our lives, taking us from the countable to the uncountable, is the journey of humility and transparency to the will of God for us in our physical lives. However, in life's journey to humility, there is the different levels of whatsoever and of that which are counted. We will explain. Everything will become crystal clear, my dear friends. Let us back up and ask a question. If the journey of life is to bring us to the uncountable, then why does God demand, command Moses to count the Jewish people? Why does Elijah the prophet refer to God as you are one, rather than just saying you are uncountable? And why does Isaiah tell us that the number of the children of Israel shall be, rather than just saying, neither be measured nor counted? To understand this, let us first speak of the sea creature and the land creature. Our sages teach us, all that exists upon land exists as well within the sea, upon which our sages of mysticism explain, only that in the sea there is the hidden world. What this means is that spiritual, spiritually speaking, the sea represents the hidden world, in which the sea creatures exist and are hidden within their source. God created the earth and the sea, and then on Thursday, the fifth day of creation, God commanded the waters that they should swarm with life. And the sea gave forth living sea creatures, which then lived within the sea. On Friday, the sixth day of creation, God commanded the earth that it should give forth living creatures. And the earth gave out living land creatures, which walked upon the earth. Yes, the land creatures all live from the minerals and nourishment that comes from the earth. However, the land creatures do not live within the earth from which they came forth. Now, what does this really mean to us? In Kabbalah and Hasidus, this refers to the transparency, the humility, and the consciousness of the creature to its source. In the hidden world, we speak of how the light and the vessels are one. This is the transparency of the sea creature. Now let me share with you something so amazing. Now you know the awesome secret of Moses, who was named by Pharaoh's daughter Moshe. Why? From the Hebrew word Mishisihu. Because she said, from the waters I have drawn him forth. Mishisihu, drawn him forth. Mystically speaking, this means that Moses was a sea creature, a holy soul who lives in total transparency, humility, and consciousness of his source. 
This was the man who would bring the Jewish people the Torah from God. This was an uncountable sea creature who was to bring the infinite uncountable essence light of the Torah to the land creatures. Land creatures are those who sustain themselves from their source. However, they do not live in the total transparency, humility, and consciousness of their source. Thus, we now see the difference between the whatsoever and the that which of the transparency of the counted to the infinite importance, which then dictates whether they will be neutralized once they face the challenge of assimilation into a realm of ego, arrogance, and denial. Here's the big difference. The sea creature has total transparency. So even when it gets assimilated into the world, it still remains infinite importance. It does not become nullified. It does not become neutralized. While that which is only whatsoever, that which is not, there's two levels of, so let's just re recap. There's the two levels of transparency, the whatsoever or the that which. That which is sometimes sold by bulk and sometimes counted means that they don't have an unbreakable importance. Thus, when they come into the world of assimilation, ego, counted, separation, they lose their importance. And thus they became open, as we'll soon see, to the evil eye. While the sea creatures, they're only counted, never in bulk. They have such a total connection with the uncountable, the essence of the soul, the sea creature, total humility, total transparency, and therefore they never become neutralized. Now let's go further. Now we can appreciate the blessing of Joseph and Hosea's words of prophecy to the Jewish people. The verse that the offspring of Joseph quoted when he answered why he is not afraid of the evil eye even in the domain where the evil eye festers is, let's quote the verse again, and let them multiply like fishes in the midst of the earth. Why does the verse not suffice with just saying the blessing of and let them multiply like fishes and instead continues with in the midst of the earth? The answer is that when one is in the sea environment, there is no uniqueness that he is not susceptible to the evil eye. The blessing of Joseph and his offspring is that even when he is in the midst of the earth, here we're talking land, he is still not susceptible to the evil eye. So too with the words of Hosea, And the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which shall neither be measured nor counted. We are speaking of the number of the children of Israel and that within their number they shall be transparent to the neither be measured nor counted. How can this be so? Because the children of Israel live their life in this physical world of complexity and multiplicity as sands of the sea. Thus, the will of God is that Moses should specifically yes count the Jewish people and that precisely in this world of counting and separation which breeds the evil eye, here the Jewish people should remain connected to the uncountable, to you are one with no counting, and the number shall be neither measured nor counted. In closing, 
One is left to clearly define is how to practically protect ourselves and our personal numbers of health, beauty, and abundance from the evil eye. After all of our exploration of the mystical dimensions of the portion of Moses taking the senses of the Jewish people and the half shekel, let us now return to the powerful, simple story. The protection of the Jewish people from the evil eye when they were entering into the world of the counted was their each giving a half shekel to the holy temple. In other words, the practical and certain way to protect ourselves from the evil eye is to give charity. Let us understand how this works. In the simple sense, our sages teach us charity saves us from death. Tzedakah tatzel memavet. However, I want to specifically understand how charity protects us from the evil eye in lieu of everything we just learned. What we just learned was that the only way to protect ourselves from the evil eye is when we connect and make transparent our countable to the uncountable. We spoke of the vessels, our physical bodies, being transparent to the light, our souls. Taking up a level, taking it up a level. We spoke of us being transparent to our source, to God. Money is arguably the strongest point of our world of separation, envy, and arrogance. Judaism sees our acts of charity not as an ego trip act of benevolence. Rather, we call it tzedakah, which comes from the word tzedek, justice. Giving tzedakah is a humble act of justice, in which we say that ultimately we are all the children of God and, God, and that God provides for everyone equally. It is only so that acts of giving can exist in the world that God created the rich, those who receive directly from God, and the poor, those who receive what is theirs through the acts of giving of others. I want to repeat this so we have this clear. It is only so that acts of giving can exist in the world that God created the rich. Who are the rich? Those who receive directly from God. And the poor. Who are the poor? Those who receive what is theirs through the acts of giving of others, which means God gives what belongs to the poor person, God gives it to the rich person, so that the rich person can have the act of giving and give it to the poor. That's why it's called justice, not kindness. Because what we're doing is just. Thus, when one gives tzedakah, what is he ultimately saying? He is saying that money the embodiment of counting is in essence his vehicle to the uncountable oneness in which he perceives that we are all equal children of God, equally deserving, protected, and provided for by God. This is why giving tzedakah is the ultimate experience of being counted by God and protecting ourselves and our possessions from the evil eye by becoming the sands of the sea. Friends, modernity offers growth and growth comes with challenges. Judaism offers timeless divine solutions. Here at the Jewish mind is where modernity meets Judaism.